0: Thank you, Tyler Maria, for that majestic reading. And good evening, everybody. My name's Mark. It's wonderful to be with you this new year. Let's just pray together now. Father, thank you for this new year. And thank you for your life-giving word. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to mine it and extract everything that you have for us tonight from it. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Well, great. We're dedicating this season uh, as one of spiritual reset in our lives. It just, just seems like a good time to, to kind of recalibrate our faith lives. And this morning, S- Simon gave a, a, an absolutely epic talk about reading scripture. I was reflecting this afternoon uh, in the wake of that, that if I'm honest, and I share this in case it resonates with any of you, I had more stuffing. Than Scripture over Christmas. I had more wine than worship. I had more pudding than prayer. And it may have been like that for you. You may still be in that place. And we know that the last 20 months has dented our spiritual practices, our devotional lives. It's been really hard to maintain a good rhythm. But it's a new day today. This is a new day. And Israel, in this passage, needed a new day. It needed a spiritual reset in its life as a nation. And that's what happens here. God announces his desire to bring that to Israel through the fire of his presence and through the reins of his blessing. And as those come, he says, I am here, I am available to each one of you, just as he is available here in this church tonight. At the start of this passage, the people of Israel have turned away from the worship of Yahweh. And the tyrannical rulers of this nation, Ahab and Jezreel, they've raised up altars to Baal instead. Baal is the supposed rain god. But God has used his prophet, Elijah. And Elijah has prayed that the rains would stop. And for three years, rain has not fallen on the nation. The ground is just bone dry. And at that point, Ahab and Elijah, they call all the people of the nation to Mount Carmel, the sacred mountain, in order to have an epic show-off to discover Which is the true God? Is it Baal or is it Elijah's God, Yahweh? That's where we pick this up. And Baal's altar, it's piled high with sacrifice. And the altar to Yahweh is broken down. It's just scattered on the ground. Stones in ruins. And I wonder tonight, how do you find yourself Coming to the worship of God, not just in our sung worship, but with the whole of your lives. If I'm honest with myself, although I've entered this year with all kinds of spiritual good intentions, do I worship at other altars? Do I spend time bowing down to other gods? Elijah has just said to the people here, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And then it says, but the people said nothing. Am I sitting on the fence? Am I like these people, caught between two opinions? Caught between two courses of action? Caught between the worship of God in heaven and the worship of the world? Well, it says the people said nothing. The people here are at least honest. They don't open their mouths. And their silence speaks of their passivity and their confusion. And yet within this very same chapter, we're going to go on to read, Then the fire of God fell and burned up the sacrifice. And after that, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose and a heavy rain came. And wherever you are in your faith life tonight, God can turn up the spiritual temperature. God can change the weather pattern in a moment. That's what he can do. And when God's fire and his rain fall in our lives, it changes everything. Just think back to moments in your life where you've had a God encounter, where you've known his fire where you've known his reign. When it happens here, it says, the people fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. When the heavens open here, people lift their mouths and they drink the rain that's coming down. Flowers release their scent. The crops suddenly surge up from beneath the ground and God renews his people. It's an amazing thing. This is God's invitation to each one of us tonight. Will you seek the fire of his presence afresh? Will you open your arms to the reins of his blessing? Because he's just longing to pour these things out upon you. Five years ago, I was traveling up a motorway north to a Christian conference. And uh, I was spiritually disillusioned. I was cynical. I did not want to go there. There had just been a scandal in the leadership of the network that was running this conference, and just in my heart, nothing wanted to go to this place. But there I was going. And then three days later, I was heading back south down that motorway, and I'd encountered the fire and the rain of God not through my own efforts entirely through the grace and the kindness of god but i had done one thing i paid attention that when i got to that conference i felt the lord was saying to me whatever you feel whatever you're feeling whatever you're thinking just worship and pray just worship and pray And before the fire and the rain come in this passage, Elijah does two things. He worships and he prays. The first thing he does is he worships. He rebuilds the altar of worship right next to the altar of Baal. He calls the people to him to watch him at work. And he gathers stones. He gathers stones from a shattered altar to Yahweh. And he builds them together, and they watch him. And as the stones unite, it recalls this moment of the 12 stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel being brought together into one unity. There is power when we're unified in worship. Real power. And then Elijah completes the altar, he brings his sacrifice, and he dedicates it to God. And he's doing what Abraham did right back in the book of Genesis. Abraham used to build up altars wherever he had a dramatic meeting with God. He built altars where he'd been altered. God did extraordinary things in his life, and Abraham wanted to remember them. Everything changes when we meet God in this way. We've just been filming members of this congregation asking them about their experience of the role of worship in their lives. One person said, it's my love response when I worship to who God is and what he's done. Another person said that, uh, recalling a, a traumatic moment in her late teenage life when she was having an identity crisis, she said she went into her room to worship And it was the first time she'd ever tangibly felt the presence of God. How do we turn a moment like that into a consistent pattern of worship in our lives? Well, if we're new to worship, or if we've neglected worship, if our heart's gone a little bit cold, it's going to take a bit of time. It's going to take a bit of work. It takes time and work for Elijah to gather these stones together and rebuild the altar. He's got to go and get a bull and slaughter it and bring it to that altar. It says he put all of the pieces of the bull upon that altar. Worship requires all of us. God wants every bit of us. He wants our our thoughts, he wants our tongues, he wants our relationships, our careers, our finances, our love lives. He wants it all. That is what worship is. We're to surrender our lives, offering our very best to God at the altar. And why? We worship because he's worth it. We worship because he's beautiful. We worship because he's the truth. We worship because he loves us. And yet, our flesh resists worship at times. Perhaps we feel this in the tension of our everyday lives. Do we carve out space and time to worship? Will we yield all of ourselves to God? When we put the best of ourselves on the altar, do we protect it from being taken from that place. After Abraham has built his altars in Genesis 15 and put his sacrifice there, scripture records, then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. And other translations call those birds of prey vultures. When we worship, scripture is telling us that vultures are circling around. There are other idols that want our worship. Idols such as the longing for comfort and ease, or success and prestige, the idol of addiction, the idol of perfectionism, the idol of consumerism, of online pleasure, whatever it might be, will you follow Abraham's example and drive the vultures away? Will we renew our life of worship this 2022? Not just our lives of sun worship, glorious so that is on a Sunday, but our whole life worship. God invites us to set up our altar right in the middle of the world's darkness, right next to the altar of Baal. He doesn't ask us to go off to uh, some holy squeaky, clean, purified place. No, we're to be able to set up our altar of worship wherever we are. We're to be able to go into our offices and consecrate those places with our worship. And then we see from this passage that when God's fire falls on our sacrifice, cleanses us of our sins, it changes everything. The people can suddenly see every other God supposed God as false. And they do away with the prophets of Baal and they embrace a new life of purity. It's dynamic. They've had a revelation. In the words of the first church leader that, um, whose church I entered after I'd come to faith, he used to say this, there is one God and no runners-up. There is one God and no runners-up. And we know that when we have a God encounter. then we all need this? Isn't this a cleansing and a renewing that we all need at the beginning of this new year? You may feel that the odds are against you. Elijah must have felt the odds were against him. They were against him 450 to one. There were 450 prophets of Baal facing him down. This church seats about 450. That's like The odds of you against everyone else here. Big odds. Huge odds. But they don't matter in God's economy. Because God isn't interested in human odds. He deals in invisible realities. Realities of heaven. And before this scene, he's told Elijah, I will send rains on this land. And Elijah has said to him, Before praying for fire, Lord, I am your servant, and I've done all these things at your command. And then the fire of God fell. When God promises, and we obey, human odds go out the window. Anything is possible. Rebuild your altar. Now, of course, we don't haul bulls to altars these days. There's no more temple sacrifice. That... Ends with Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we bring our worship, the whole of ourselves now, to Jesus. And we're to embrace his presence wherever we are, wherever we go. In church on Sundays, but also at home and on the streets and in our offices and in the community. Fill your heart and your mind with The awe and the adoration of Jesus renew your worship. And then the second practice which Elijah does before fire and rain fall is he prays. When Elijah hears in the spirit the sound of rain coming, it says this, Ahab went off to eat and to drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Just think about this, he's just prayed and seen fire come down from heaven. I mean, if I was in his position, I would be standing tall, I would be kind of rubbing shoulders with God in my imagination, saying, come on now, bring on the rain. Or I'd be going off with Ahab, feasting, celebrating. But it's not what Elijah does. His spiritual hunger is greater and his physical hunger. Sidney Poitier, the iconic film actor who's just died, said this, if your dreams don't scare you, they're not big enough. If your dreams don't scare you, they're not big enough. And Elijah's dreams and his prayers are big. He cares about his nation because he knows the beating, tender heart of God for the people of Israel. And he knows that God longs to see the people come back to him. God wants big dreams for each one of us. And the way that we see big dreams brought to reality is through the power of prayer. But getting into that place, getting into the place of prayer, up the mountain or into a room like Jesus says to do, that can be hard. We all know that, it can be really hard. I've been remembering uh, a friend, Ron Boyd Macmillan, who is a, a kind of authority on the persecuted church, telling me a story about a meeting he had with a Chinese church leader called Wan Dao, who was a famous evangelist uh, in the underground church of China uh, and was a, a kind of a church leader and speaker and writer. And the Chinese Communist authorities slung him in prison in his sixties and kept him there for 23 years. And during this time, this friend Ron met him, met Wan Ming Dao in his cell, and they had a right old conversation about how this Chinese leader had experienced God in a fresh way in that prison. And uh, at the end of their time together, Ron basically said, "Well, it's all very well for me now. I'm going back to the West, and it's all going to be very comfortable. You know, I'm feeling really uncomfortable about leaving you." And Dow said to him, "Well, tell me a bit about your life back in the West. What are you doing in your work?" And so Ron began to tell him, and Dow began to press him on his schedule and his deadlines and all the other pressures in his life. The difficulties of balancing his life and his work. And gradually, Ron began to sweat as he anticipated the pressures of what he was going back to and a very unpeaceful life. And he suddenly had an insight. And he said to Dow, I need to build myself a prayer cell. And Dow got really excited and he said, It'll be harder for you in the West. I was pushed into a cell. And pushed into this cell, it's been the greatest blessing in my life. Because I have nothing to do here but to spend time with Jesus. But you're going to need to build a prayer cell. Brick by brick by brick. I've been serving Jesus, he said, all my life as a professional church leader but I'd never spent much time enjoying his presence. We need to build our altar. We need to build our prayer cell. And I don't know about you, but distraction and dedication and to my to-do list, these are the things that hold me back most from prayer. You've got to simplify your life. You've got to find a way of paring down your life in order to be able to get into the secret place of prayer. And Elijah models that we're, when we get there, we're to be patient and we're to be consistent. Some of the bands, the music bands of my youth, if I think back on them, I mean, I can hardly remember them. They were one-hit wonders. But Elijah just prays on and on and on and on. He prays seven times here. And sends his servant to scan the horizon for rain clouds. It's so interesting. The fire falls immediately when Elijah prays. The rains take seven lots of prayer to come. And what's scripture saying to us through this? I think perhaps that God's providential purposes work in different ways at different times. Sometimes the Lord takes his hammer and he strikes the forge. And sometimes... He leaves it to us. He wants a greater level of participation from us, and we just have to chip away with our chisel until breakthrough comes. A hundred years ago, a woman, a female missionary, was living in Algeria. Uh, she was living in an Arab house, and there was a big pillar, uh, along with other pillars that held up the upper gallery. And one night, one of the pillars, it just crumbled. It was masonry. And dust. And an architect was sent in to try and diagnose why this pillar had collapsed. And he found the reason that there was a bakery next door. And every night, two men kind of worked this huge seesaw to knead the dough. And the vibrations from that traveled through the foundations. They weakened the pillar. And finally, it came crashing down. And the missionary in that house said, it's like this in prayer. The beats of our prayer on earth, they vibrate up in heaven. She said, we can never tell which prayer will liberate the answer, but we can tell that each one will do its work. And I don't know why the Lord required seven lots of prayer from Elijah. It's a mystery. Maybe he wanted to keep Elijah humble. Maybe he didn't want us to be over-intimidated by Elijah's example. The writer James in the New Testament says, Elijah was a man just like us. He's saying he wasn't a praying superstar. He just had a practice and he was faithful and he kept on praying. He kept on praying in God's promises. Elijah was all too human. We see that in his story elsewhere. But he knew the personal meaning of reset in his life. And he had a big dream of a spiritual reset for the life of his nation. So don't ever give up on prayer. Don't ever give in in prayer. If your prayer life is suffering at the moment, just set up your room afresh. Draw up a favorite chair. Get a cup of coffee in your hand. Whatever's going to be helpful. You don't need a mountain Climb. The biblical mountain is just a call to get away from distraction. That's all it is. Your car can be your prayer cell. You don't even have to get into your own room. You can be in your living room at home with your kids, with your earphones in, and you can be deep in worship and prayer. And use a devotional book written by a, a great man or woman of faith of the past. Or use a contemporary app like Lectio 365 or the Bible in a year tune into our reset series that Stephen was talking about it's going to have lots of interviews very practical interviews with people from our church talking about what helps them in prayer don't be discouraged by apparent odds of 450 to 1 against you and don't ever think that your starting place for worship or prayer isn't promising enough I'll just finish with this story. In 2011, I went on a mission trip to Africa, and um, we went to a nation where Christians have a really tough time, a rough ride. And our contact said he was going to take us to this um, incredible church. And we got in this minibus, we drove to these maize fields, and he walked us through the maize fields for miles and miles and miles until we came to this little shabby deserted clearing. There was nothing and no one there except for a tiny tin shack like a kind of outside loo with a few tools in. That was it. And he said, this is it. And we were completely mystified. And then over the next half hour, people began to appear through the maze in the field. Just these terrified, desperate faces of local villagers. It was a local community that the police and the army used to move off every couple of months. They, they would abduct them, they would torture them, they would transport them hundreds of miles away, and then the community would gradually come back to its homelands. And every week on this day, they came to this spot to meet this man. Was it a promising place for worship and prayer? I didn't think so. And then they asked us if we would lead them in worship and prayer. And I froze in complete terror. What could happen here? What possible good could happen here? Thankfully, the leader of our mission party bravely stepped forward and started doing that. He read from Psalm 136, where God leads his people out of Egypt and parts the Red Sea for them. And these villagers began to worship. They began to protest to God. They began to lament. They began to cry out, cry out their despair. And then they began to pray. Some of them wouldn't join in, but gradually the faith of those who were praying carried them with them. And then the fire and the rain of God fell. I don't mean literally. But I've never experienced the power and the presence of God like it in that place. It was extraordinary. God came. He wanted to meet those people. Worship and prayer don't need to begin in a place of promise. God invites them in the least likely places, including the disappointed, despairing places in our hearts. He comes. And he meets us right there. And he meets us when we're united, like the 12 tribes of Israel, when we're gathered in one place and we meet together in worship. That's where he sends fire and rain particularly. So call on the Elijah in you to rise up this new year. Rebuild your altar. Build your prayer room and experience that fire and that rain for the first time or the 20th time. There is one God and no runners-up, and he's jealous for your affections. Amen.